Welcome, and thank you for joining us for the City Baptist Church Podcast. We would love to have you join us for a service in person. You can find all the information you need on our website at citybaptist.church. Well, it's good to see you. I hope you'll take your Bibles with me, and let's go to 1 Peter chapter number 2 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, you kind of knew that's where we were going to go. And so I'm excited to spend the next few minutes with you in the Word of God. That's why we come here, right? That's why we're here. We want to hear from God. We want to know what He has to say to us, and we want to understand what it is uh, that His Word is teaching us. Well, in our study so far of 1 Peter, of course, we understand and we know that uh, the threshold of Peter's letter to the scattered believers has now been crossed as he has transitioned from the theological and foundational security of a person's relationship with Jesus Christ, and he's now transferred or moving on to the idea of personal application to the Word of God. As God's chosen people, and I just want to bring us uh, just to a point of remembrance of where we've been so far in our study, as God's chosen people, we are to represent our Savior through holy living, are we not? Okay, if you're shaking your head no, then you, got, you, missed a, you missed a point here. But we are to be representing Christ with the desire to live as a holy people, as a righteous people, right in the middle of an unholy and a hostile world. And so Peter, uh, where we were last week in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, begins to remind us and call us to the fact that we are to be living a life of good works, a life that uh, reflects the mercy of God that we have received. Now, in chapter 2 and verse number 11, uh, I want to go ahead and read that to you. He says, Dearly beloved, just as a reminder, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. And Maximus, you can put that up for me. There we go. I don't know why my app's not connecting, so I'm going to try it again. Sound good? Uh, Here we go. (laughs) We'll get it at some point. Sometimes it's like, I don't know what's going on with the technology or who's got got, uh, metal plates or or whatever. Here we go. We'll give it another shot here. Um, But in verse 11, he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Here's what we talked about last week. You need to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. In essence, what is happening here is that Peter is giving us the biblical roadmap how we can live impactful lives because of our salvation and our calling. So he's giving us some direction. He's pointing us to where we need to go. And he's saying, listen, this is the roadmap of how you live an impactful life. Now remember, all of this, all of this is for the purpose of living out our faith within the community of God and also within the general community that we are blessed to live in. And we have to remember as well that this was written to a minority group of people, a minority group of people in an overwhelming lost and pagan society. And he is giving them these instructions and he's encouraging them that, listen, I want you to live and represent Jesus Christ And I want to uh, point people to Christ so that those without him would come to know him as their personal Lord and Savior. And ultimately, as the verse says, then bring glory to God at that point. Now, it's easy for us at at this aspect of the message and this aspect of of the passage to relate to this. Because honestly, I think we know what it's like to be a minority group in a large city, don't we? We know what it's like to be a, a small group of people within a largely 
we would maybe even use the word pagan, I don't know, but definitely ungodly society all around us, people that are focused on so many other things. So we know what it's like. We know what it's like to be this small group, and while it's easy maybe to relate to the early church and these scattered believers at this point, at the same time, the challenge is still there to us because as a minority group, it's ironic that even though there are only a few of us, we still are very good at just finding each other. And if you're not careful, I think some of you recognize this, it is possible to build sort of a Christian bubble around your life so that you don't really have much influence, you don't really have much uh, involvement or impact in the unsaved world. And it's, it's ironic to me that though we recognize our, our small group, we're very good at insulating ourselves from the world around us. And of course, there are some wise things that we need to, uh, things that we need to do that are, are wise to insulate ourselves from, of course, but what happens is that sometimes we find ourselves for years maybe without meaningful relationships that can lead to gospel impact in another person's life. And that's why we need the challenge that Peter is giving here to these early, these, this early church because they're foundational for building a life that reflects your faith to a lost and an unbelieving world. And one of the ways that he does that is not so much by telling us what we can't do as Christians, but by encouraging us to do some things, right? The Bible tells us that for he who knows, uh, knoweth to do good and does it not, to him it is what? Sin. So, so much of the Bible is about doing things that we know to be good. It's not so much people like to look at the Bible and say, well, it's just a book of rules, all the things that I can't do. Uh, but the truth is there's so much of scripture that is telling us what we should do and it's pointing us towards something, See, the impact of biblical separation, and that's a, a biblical term for sure, the impact of biblical separation or our distinction from the world is not only seen in what we abstain from. There are things that we must abstain from. In fact, we read about that. But rather, we should be known for what we pursue and what we exemplify the good things. That's what makes us stand out. Because we are the servants of God and we're not the servants of the flesh. So there's a uniqueness to our walk with God where we are for a lot of really good things and we should exemplify many good things as a way to point others to Christ. It's not just about us telling everybody, no, can't do that. I'm a Christian. I'm sorry. Maybe you've used that excuse, you know. <laughs> Somebody advice you to, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm too good for that. Because that's how it comes across to them, right? That's definitely how it comes across to them. But we are to be known for what we are doing that is good and these, this element and it's because we are the servants to God, uh, uh, to God and for God. Now, this is a key point to understand. And I'm laying this foundation for today because as we move into this next passage, what we see here is Peter, just like Paul before him, make a direct line towards a distinctly Christian characteristic, something that stands out in the environment and worldview that we are in. And it's, he, he does it by isolating and pointing out to us a very specific singular word that is essential to an outward life that brings honor to the Lord. It is a word that we're gonna cover today and it defines a whole bunch of the next few verses. And in fact, it's gonna cover today and next week's message as well. And it is a word that we love so very much. It is the word submit. Why are you laughing? The word submit. The word submit is from the Greek word hypotasso, which means to subordinate, not insubordinate, but to place yourselves, to obey, to be under obedience in subjection. Now, just by the laughter after I said the word submit as we built up to it, it reminded me of the fact that submission is not a word that we love to hear, is it? 
It's not a word that our secular society likes to hear either. In fact, uh, the average person today, if you were to talk to them about, hey, are you submitting to your boss? You know, are you submitting to your uh, spouse or whatever submission you want to talk about? It would immediately be resisted. It would be pushed against. Uh, however, for the Christian, it is a key element of the person who is following Jesus Christ's example and following the ways of Christ. Because remember, submission is one of the primary characteristics of Christ's ministry on this earth, isn't it? If you remember to Philippians chapter 2, verse number 8, we see that Jesus found himself as fashioned as a man. He humbled himself. And how much did he humble himself? He became obedient to death. Think about that. He submitted himself to death, even the death of the cross. And so when we say as Christians that we are to be submissive or we are to submit, what we are doing is we are, in fact, emulating our very Savior and the example that he gave to us as he came to this, this earth and submitted to the cross. See, the primary intention here of Peter as he moves into the murky waters is what we're going to talk about today. The murky waters of Christian submission, it is exactly what we would see in our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the example that he gives to us as he submitted in meekness and humility, willfully submitting himself to suffering and death for the sake of you and for me. The very fact that the submission of Christ is so key to his death is a central theme that we're going to follow this morning. And it's an important point for us to keep in mind as we move into the instructions that we are given here in the areas that we are to submit. Now, I want to make it very clear this morning at the very outset, okay? This passage comes with a lot of temptation. You say, what do you mean, pastor? The Bible's not supposed to tempt us. Well, we're still flesh, aren't we? This passage that we're going to cover today and next week even, it comes with some temptation. It comes with temptation for me as a pastor, and it also comes with temptation for you as the listener, because when we read this passage, the temptation is to immediately fit what is given to us into our own personal opinions, our own past experiences, the current climate that we live in as a country, and the other temptation is to just simply avoid the subject altogether. So yesterday when I got home from work, and uh, I was talking, I always talk to Jeanette. Typically, I talk to her about my message, unless it's about her. And I'm just joking. I'm kidding. I don't do that. I don't prepare messages with her. I ran the top of my message, Jeanette needs this. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That is not true. Um, but I said to Jeanette, I, I, said, I said, this is what I'm preaching on tomorrow. And she says, are you sure you want to do that? She's never said that to me before. That was a first, a first. And I said, get thee behind me, Satan. I'm down. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I didn't say that. <laughs> you know what? This is the joy of preaching through the Bible expositionally. Because it seems like when you need it, you come to a passage that you maybe would normally just skip over and not apply. But you say, you know what? I need this. And so that's why I love preaching through the Bible verse by verse because it directly connects oftentimes to what we're facing and what is going on in our society. But not only that, it means that we cannot ignore or escape tough passages that the Christian must confront and understand. So that's why we do this. This is why we preach often verse by verse through the Bible, because it forces us to do the hard work of understanding a passage. Any one of us, if we wanted to just, you could live your entire Christian life on, on rose petals and flowers, just reading all the positive parts of the Bible. 
And unfortunately, a lot of churches build their ministries off of the positive aspects of the Bible. There's a lot of positives in the Bible, by the way. And some churches, they build their entire ministry off of that. But as a biblical church, as a Baptist church, one of our defining characteristics is that we preach the word of God. And so if it's tough sometimes, all of you are looking at your Bibles now. What is he going to talk about? As we, uh, as we preach some of these tougher passages, it's okay because we need to faithfully understand Scripture, and particularly along this important subject of submission. So let's read verse number 13 and 14. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. This morning, our first point is submission to governmental authority. Submission to governmental authority. And by the way, this is our only point today. So write down number one. This is all we're going to stick with today. And we're going to do our best to understand here what is happening. First Peter chapter 2, he says here, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Submit to the king as supreme. Submit to the governors. Now, at first reading, when we come to this passage, what happens here? Well, we resist this idea, don't we? I don't know about you, but I read this passage and I think, does he know who our prime minister is? <laughs> does he know who, okay, well, I could just say them all, our mayor, our premier, does he know who is in charge? Does he know who is the representation of the king and of the governor? Does he know? And at first reading, we resist this idea and that's the temptation that we face. But if we're to know Peter's intent, then we also need to understand the context of his statement. And when you understand the context and the extent of what he is saying, there is a force to Peter's words here that only grows in size when you consider who was the emperor of the day. See, we can read this and we can say, well, Peter, you didn't know who was to come. You don't know who's in charge of, of our country. You don't know who's, who's over all of these things. You don't know that, Peter. Do you know who was in charge when Peter wrote these words? Emperor Nero. Nero. Uh, not known for his kindness, was he? Nero was not known for uh, the, the good things that he did. Nero was somebody, as you understand, was a Roman ruler who led a great persecution against the Christians in the first century, didn't he? Uh, he was somebody, in fact, that Peter himself was martyred under his rule. And adding to that, the other authorities of the time that he mentioned their governors included governors Pontius Pilate and Felix. If you remember, Pilate was the one who handed Jesus over to death while Peter stood off in the shadows. Uh, Felix was the one who kind of played a power move with the Apostle Paul, and we covered that uh, some in uh, the book of Revelation and the book of Acts as well. And the point being, all of these rulers that are out there were no friend to followers of Jesus Christ. There was no friendship at all, no kindness, no olive branch, nothing to believers of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and adding to that, the emperor that we know through our study of the book of Acts, and again, then in, in the beginning of Revelation, we understand that the ruler, the emperor, was so supreme that in some communities, in fact, you had to pledge allegiance to the emperor. You had to worship the emperor, make that a part of who you were in order to even do certain aspects of business or to be a part of certain areas of social life. You had to proclaim your allegiance to the emperor. Now, we know that Christians are never to worship the emperor, right? We know that. However, what we see in this verse is that as Christians, we are not to worship the emperor. However, whoever is in control, we should obey their laws because they are, they are an authority that was placed there and in that position 
by God. Now, Paul enforces this in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, where he says this, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. This is a very, very strong verses, a uh, couple of verses right here. So what do we see? What do we understand? We understand that Peter and Paul both are calling for submission to the rulers that be because they are ordained, they are placed there, they are a part, and and they're by God. Here's what we understand. God in his his all-consuming power and sovereignty allows governments and leaders to function under his will. Now, ideally, what we understand government to be, and we see this in scripture, is that government ideally is in place to protect those uh, that are, are suffering to serve its citizens as well as to punish those that are uh, doing wrong things. In verse 14, if you remember back to what we just read, he says that they are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. The primary function of government is that they should punish the unlawful and encourage the good. Unfortunately, though, governments don't always just do that, do they? And so when a government distorts or betrays this function... Those who run the governments, those who are in charge, are then going to be responsible and answer to God. They are under God's constraint and also under God's final judgment. By the way, that's just a good thing to remember when you think about governments that be. And so what is the call here? The call to us is as Christians to obey God by obeying the law of the land. Now, the question always arises, well, what are the limits to that, Pastor Paul? Right? What are the limits to me obeying the government. After all, Paul and Peter were both killed by the government, right? So what are the restrictions here? Remember what Peter said in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, where he says we ought to obey God rather than men. Do you remember that? Peter himself said that. He says we're going to obey God and we're not going to obey men. So when Peter and Paul here speak of submission, and Maximus, I'm going to have you stay with the slides today because I'm not able to change them. So you go stick with them. Thank you. And so when Peter and Paul here are speaking of submission, what needs to happen? We need to recognize that he's not talking about a blind following of the government simply because of who they are. What he is saying is that submission to the law of the land must be the default unless we are being forced to sin against God and against our Holy Spirit-guided conscience. Now, if you go into scripture, there are multiple examples of Christians that stand up against the government authority. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. Remember the midwives who were told to kill every Jewish baby that was born in the land of Egypt. And what do we see them? We see them resisting. We see them hiding. We see them putting them in little baskets in the river to float down the river. I remember three Jewish slaves who refused to bow down and worship the golden idol that was set up. I think about Daniel, even though the law of the land was no one was allowed to pray to anyone except for Darius, And yet Daniel, three times a day, turned his face towards Jerusalem and prayed to his God. I think of Peter and John. I referenced Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Peter and John standing there preaching, and they were forbidden to preach. And they said, we will preach the gospel anyway. Though it was forbidden, we will preach the word of God. Now, in each of these situations that I've mentioned, and there's several others throughout Scripture, the government had called upon God's people to sin against God And God's people had to submit to a higher power, but the higher power was not the government. It was God himself. 
And so to answer the question, where are the lines that should be drawn, there's many passages of Scripture that give us guidelines and examples. So here's what we know about the government. The government has the right to demand respect, to demand obedience, taxes, honor from its citizens. We recognize that because God appoints governments and they do serve a purpose. However, when a government demands allegiance that conflicts with a believer's loyalty to God, Christians respond in a different way. And as believers, there is a line that must be drawn that we will stand up against, and we must never allow the government to force us to disobey God. Jesus and his apostles never disobeyed the government. Think about it for personal reasons. When they disobeyed God, or when they disobeyed the government, they were following a higher loyalty to God. And I want you to recognize that in Scripture, whenever someone did resist and stand up against the government because they were being commanded or forced or withheld from doing what God had called them to do, their disobedience was not cheap. They were threatened. They were beaten. They were thrown in prison. They were tortured. They were executed for their convictions. The point being this, if we come to a point that we are compelled to disobey, we must be ready to accept the consequences. In 1 Peter chapter 4, which we're not quite there yet, but I want to read this to you. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. He says this in verse 16, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Not everyone is aware of this. But in January 6th, or January 1st, I'm sorry, of this year, a law known as Bill C-4 was put into formal official law in Canada that forbids me as a pastor in a position of authority to promote a biblical view of human sexuality and gender. It is a very broad law in its language, and I've read it. And it's so broad that it actually can even apply to a personal private conversation that even one of you may have with somebody else. The penalties are up to five years of imprisonment, heavy fines. And this is the reality of our own country right now, where we see a law specifically put in place that hinders us from preaching and teaching a biblical viewpoint of human sexuality. So I give this to you this morning as an example because we are not that far, and I would say this is the first of one thing that's going to come into play that is going to be the government putting pressure upon biblical Christians and trying to keep us from following what the Word of God says, even to the point of free speech that we cannot even speak, cannot even speak of what the Bible teaches specifically. So church, should I avoid that? Should I, as a pastor, then skip over all of those passages when we come to it? When it's time for us to preach, will you stand beside me and support my family while I'm in prison? These are some good things to think about. Now, we should be wise. I love scripture, wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. So that means I'm not going to put on a sandwich board and go stand out on Robson Street and, you know, proclaim, <laughs> right? We're going to be wise about it. But these are the kind of questions that we are being faced with and we will be faced with in the years to come. So is this an area that we submit in? I would say, 
I would submit that it is not. This is something where we do say we will stand for what Scripture says. But the truth is this. In most areas of life, when we are commanded to live according to the law of the land, we are commanded to obey the law, whether or not we agree with the policies surrounding it. I think it's better understood in a modern context in this way. I think we need to recognize, church, that probably approximately one-third of Christians in the globe today live in free societies. The truth is two-thirds of them typically live in oppressive societies, places where their faith is, is, uh, is illegal or it's a repressive government. See, Scripture does not command one kind of government over another. It really doesn't. Rather, the Scripture says this very simply, you need to accept the government under whose authority you find yourself and cooperate with the rulers as far as the Holy Spirit directed conscience and, Holy, and, and the truth of the word of God, what it tells us to do. So Peter is encouraging these Christians to not <clears throat> rebel against Rome, even though Rome is very, very evil. Now, this is just really interesting to me. I mean, Rome was an evil society. They killed Christians. Why then is he saying to them, I want you to obey the rule of law. You need to give honor to them. Well, the answer is found in verse 15 through verse 17. He says, for so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, verse 15 to me is particularly intriguing where Peter here says that by a Christian submission to governmental authority, whether the authority is good or bad, there can be a positive outcome. Do you see that there in the verse? Look at it. He says, it's the will of God. By the way, we need to put that in brackets or underline or something. The will of God is that we fall in, that we obey in this way, that we submit in this way. He says that with well-doing, ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That is the positive outcome that could come, is that it would silence foolish and ignorant people. Now, this is interesting to me because what he is saying is that submission to authority is a way to silence the opposition. The word silence here means to muzzle, <laughs> means to cover up and to, 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 to muffle. In other words, to shut them up. Interesting. This is a repeat of the idea in verse number 12 that we read earlier, 1 Peter 2, 12, where he says that they speak against you as evildoers that may, uh, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God. So clearly what we understand here is that the will of God is that the expression of our lives would be the only thing, uh, 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 would be the, that the only thing, sorry, let me say this properly here. I'm saying it wrong. The will of God <clears throat> is that the expression of our lives would be that the only thing an unbeliever can hold against you would be your faith. That's the only thing that should be able to be held against you is the fact that you are a Christian. And by the way, you can wear that proudly if somebody just doesn't like you because you're a Christian. Hey, that's okay. That's okay. But there should not be other aspects. There should not be other things that are keeping you or, or, or hindering your relationship. Somebody put it this way. Uh, submission to authority is the strong, strongest apologetic against the view that Christians are never up to any good. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so again, let's remember the context here. I want us to understand this passage, church. I think this is so important. These scattered believers, few in number, in an oppressive, persecuting environment, yet they still have a calling. What is that calling? To show forth the praises of the one who had called them from darkness to light. That calling that we have is irregardless of the environment that we are in. 
The calling to show forth the praise of Christ does not determine whether it's a, a liberal or an NDP or a conservative or anything like that. It, doesn't, it does not matter who the government is. We are still to show forth the praises. That is our calling as Christians. And so if Christians are constantly known for fighting the government, for rebelling, for causing unrest within the empire, that sounds like Star Wars, I know, but you know, causing unrest. In essence, what Peter is, I believe Peter is trying to get across here is that if this is what they were known for, it would put a target on their back and they would be an even greater hindrance to the gospel then. Now, this is based off of a fundamental truth and it is this. God is not in the government business. He's not. He is in the transformation business. And transformation does not take place at a bureaucratic level. Transformation takes place in the revival of a soul, in the revival of a person, of an individual who leaves behind their rebellion and their sin and turns completely to Christ. That's where real transformation takes place. And God changes societies and thought processes and policy through the transformation of individuals. And so as, as believers, our desire should be that the gospel would be freely spread as much as possible so that we can see real transformation take place. And it happens when we have a positive testimony in the community. Here's what we know of Rome. One day it did fall, didn't it? One day Christianity became the official, <laughs> granted it wasn't quite reflective of what we would believe as Christianity, but there was a change, I'll just say. They weren't feeding them the lions anymore, Okay. But here's what we know about Rome as well. Historically, it didn't take much for an edict to fall upon a certain group of people, a racial minority, any kind of, any kind of group of people. If you ticked off the emperor, they just, okay, they're, they're a target. And we recognize that because Christians did become a target at, at many points throughout the, the flow of the Roman Empire. There'd be freedom for a time, and then they would, okay, we need to go after these Christians here. And so the Christians' quiet submission would allow them to freely spread the gospel, whereas if they had a target on the back, they're the, they're the proclaimed uh, you know, enemies of the empire, it would have been difficult for them. And so the point was, is that if they were going to be persecuted, it should be for obeying God, not for breaking moral or civil laws. Remember, later on, Peter is going to be put to death for his faith and his own resistance to Nero's restrictive laws. But here's the point. Our society does not need any more reasons to distrust and categorize believers, do they? <laughs> Even in the first century, think about it. There was some bad behavior that was taking place amongst the Christians that caused them to have a bit of a bad rap. One of Jesus' own disciples in Luke was called the zealot. That's not something you wanted to be identified as. He was known as a zealot, this person. In the area of morality, I want you to think about the early church. Maybe word had spread about the people in the church in Corinth that had an incestuous relationship. That would have brought great harm to the church. Think about our own society today. How often does a person of faith or a person who uh, maybe claims to be a Christian who falls, that falls into sin or whatever, or does some horrible crime, how much is that the top of the news? The world doesn't need any more excuses to not like us, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and so our goodness, our correct attitude should be our greatest apologetic for the gospel because good works will ultimately silence false accusations. 
Look back again with me at verse number 16 and 17. He says, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That's probably not a better spot for these verses to be put in here in this whole passage. As Peter reminds us that our freedom is for serving, not for maliciousness. Maliciousness means ill will, desiring hurt and harm against somebody else. He says your freedom should not be used and not, should not be promoted as a way to bring harm to other people or try to get your will through. Freedom is meant to serve other people. And so our freedom that we have in Christ is to bring glory to God by serving him faithfully. It's not an excuse for us. And in verse number 17, then he says, he says, so this is how you use your liberty. But then he says in 17, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. These four sentences that kind of get scrunched here together summarize for us how we are to live peaceably in the world. First of all, you need to show honor and respect to all people. Do you see that there? All people should be honored and should be respected. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to believe everything they say or agree with everything they do, but you should give honor and respect to other people. And then he says here that you are to love the brotherhood. Well, that takes it to another level. And I, I like that he put love, he didn't put love all men. He said honor all men. And then he says love the brotherhood. Well, that's our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a next level that takes place. We're to give respect to all people, but we are to love, especially our brothers and sisters <clears throat> In Christ, that's the word agape, meaning a volitional, sac a self-sacrificial love. And then all of this, as you notice, is to be governed under our fear of God. See how he puts that right in there, fear God. Uh, that is our deep respect and reverence and awe. And then he rolls it all back with another command here, which is to honor the king. You say, well, we don't have a king, pastor, so we're good. I don't know, there's something about the monarchy that's still kind of kicking around, I don't know. But we do have people in that position what does that mean? It means that we're still to give honor to the position, to give honor to the position of the person who's leading the government. It doesn't mean that we have to agree, them, agree with them or necessarily love them. I don't see that, but we are to respect. So what does this mean for us today? How do we respond to this passage? How do we respond? How do we respond in light of all that is happening in our world today? Some of you might be thinking right now, Pastor, are you saying that I cannot speak up against wrong? That might be your question. Pastor, are you telling me that I cannot support the freedom convoy? Pastor, are you saying that I should do everything that the government suggests, even if I'm not comfortable with it? Those are good questions, aren't they? Those are good questions. And those questions, thankfully, are a little more easily answered because we live in a free society, theoretically. Because for right now, we do live in a country that has a charter of rights. We have the protected freedom of free speech. We have the ability to move and gather freely. We have the freedom of personal bodily autonomy. And so I do not see a conflict with a Christian exercising their charter rights to protest injustice to stand up for what they believe is right. So I'm not against all of these things. So please understand, the scripture, I don't, I don't believe that scripture is against these things, but here's the question that we need to be asking ourselves. Should political uprising be the first option of the church? Should that be our first option? Something happens we don't like, all right, take to the streets. Get your torches, <laughs> you know. Should that be the first option of the church? I think what we see here in Scripture, the answer is no. 
Because we know and we recognize that a new prime minister isn't going to change our country. Only a revival of the saved can do that. Now, this is a challenging passage, isn't it? Because it's close to home. Some of you maybe harbored great amounts of anger and bitterness and spite in your heart towards those that are in political leadership. And can I just tell you, I understand. I understand. It's a struggle for all of us. But the truth is, is that God has given us a better way as believers. He's given us a better way. And the better way serves a purpose, and the purpose is always for the gospel. Every time, that's what it comes back to. Because that is where change takes place. Change happens in the heart of the individual. Now, this is challenging. It's close to home, I realize. I think that one of the reasons it's so challenging is because we have a gluttony of freedoms here in Canada. And it's hard for us to relate to the first century church. It's hard for us to, you know, anything that is slightly, you know, anything in the news that's slightly against Christians, we're like, persecution. <laughs> I don't know that we really know what persecution is. I don't know that we really do know true persecution. Now, yes, are there limits to our freedoms? Are there attacks? Yes, of course, of course, of course. I just referenced them to you today. And it's hard to relate to the first century church, though, where people's lives are at stake. We've not experienced that yet. I believe that we will. We haven't experienced it yet, though. And so in this time that we have left this ability that God has given us to freely spread the gospel, guess what we should do? Spread the gospel. We should make that our focus as believers. I don't really know how to have an invitation today, to be honest with you. I really don't. <laughs> I don't know what to call you to except just to ask you, are you willing to submit to the example of Christ who submitted himself even unto death, even unto death in order to fulfill his purpose? Submission is a tough thing to do, but it is a biblical characteristic of the believer. Well, we do want to thank you so much for tuning into the message today. And if it's been a help and encouragement to you in any way, uh, we would ask that you share the podcast. You can easily do that on either social media or maybe just uh, text the link to a friend. But like I said, it's our mission to help others find and follow Jesus here in Vancouver uh, all across Canada and even around the world. And so you sharing the message today can really contribute towards that. Also, we would love for you to make a connection with us if you haven't already. And so the two best ways to do that is either by liking our Facebook page, that's City Baptist Church, or following our Instagram account, Advanced City Baptist. And of course, you can check out our website at citybaptist.ca. We do have all of our past sermon series on there available for you to stream, uh, past services, uh, worship, and just lots of other content and resources there to encourage you and strengthen you in your walk with God. But once again, thank you so much for tuning in today. We are looking forward to next week's message. We love you, we're praying for you, and we're here for you.